On the surface, all can look calm, denying the turbulent truth that lurks beneath. Things seem so good. Every ripple causes pain, division, and distraction, echoing out and churning up the waters of our faith. You'd think we would have figured it out by now. If only I'd spoken louder or taught clear his truth. Would these waves of confusion and doubt have stilled by now? It's all a haze, murky waters, and dimming light. Our divine purpose and mission seem so distant, almost out of reach. Where do we go from here? Yet in spite of the chaos, there's a stillness, a clarity, a beckoning to remember the timeless wisdom and teaching that echoes back to his loving light. Dear Church, I just have to say, I'm really glad that you're here today. I was not sure who would come back this week after last week's message. I didn't know if I'd be in an empty uh, room here or just with a few senior citizens that it didn't really apply to last week. But I am really glad that you're here. If you're here, you either um, uh, maybe at least partially agreed with last weekend, or if you, didn't if you didn't agree, then at least you didn't write me off like I asked. Or maybe you weren't even here last week and you don't even know what I'm talking about, but I'm glad that you're here. Here in the room, those of you online and at our Skagit campus, so glad you're here at our Skagit campus last weekend, Elise played key in our, on our worship team in, in Skagit and then left halfway through the sermon and went straight to the hospital and had a baby by 1 p.m. last Sunday. So Elise and Sam, we just want to say congratulations. And as the uh, congregation in Skagit continues to grow, one new member uh, this week. So good to have you with us. We are in this series called Dear Church, and it's based on a letter that a pastor wrote to a church. The pastor was Paul, he had actually started this church, spent a year and a half with this church, was very, this church is very dear to him, and he writes them several letters, probably four of them, and we're looking at one of them, it's called 1 Corinthians. The church was in Corinth, Greece. Now, on the one hand, this church in Corinth could not be more different than us in Cornwall. I mean, on the one hand, it was 6,000 miles away, different country, Greece, not the United States, different continent, you know, and, and not only that, but a, a different millennia, 2,000 years ago. So the time difference chronologically, the, the language difference, they spoke Greek and we don't. I mean, you might, but I don't. And the cultural difference, the, the political setting was completely different than ours. Even the religious, spiritual kind of atmosphere of their, their world was different than ours. So in some ways, we could not be more opposite, more different than this church. And yet, even in the midst of those differences, some of the issues that he talks to them about, some of the things that they are dealing with, and some of the principles he brings about in this letter are as applicable to us as they were the day they were written to the church in Corinth. And so we've been looking at some of these lessons that come out of this letter. Now today we're going to be looking at a, at a, uh, a couple of verses, primarily two, but if you were to look at the, the cultural issue the particular issue, this would be one of those things where it's like, the issue does not relate to us. We can't, we can't understand what they were dealing with. So I don't want to spend a lot of time on that. Just a little bit uh, to start off 
so that you'll know that I'm not just cherry picking scriptures, not uh, you know, aware or cognizant of the setting that they were written in. Here's the issue that he was addressing. We're not going to address that issue. We're going to look at the principle. The issue was actually a dietary issue that was causing division in the church. We don't deal with that. At least I don't. And the issue was particular with meat. And this wasn't like vegetarians versus omnivores. And it wasn't about, you know, free range and cage free and organic and GMO. And it it wasn't about red meat and white meat. It, It was none of that. The issue for them was meat that had been sacrificed as a sacrifice to a pagan deity and then turn around and sold in the marketplace. And should you buy that meat? And should you eat that meat? And should you eat that meat? And if you do, is that participating in, in this whole worship of the deities that were not Yahweh, that were not God? And so that was kind of the issue. That's not our issue today. But as Paul addresses this issue He gives a principle that completely applies to us. So I don't want to look at the particular. I want us to look at the principle. And I will say this about the principle we're going to look at today. That it is not some deep theological gem that's been hidden in the recesses of 1 Corinthians. And I'm going to pull it out and you're going to go, wow, our pastor is so deep. But this principle we're going to look at today is so profoundly practical that if... If you listen to it and you apply it to your life, and and you may think I'm overselling this, if you will take this principle and apply it to your life, it could revolutionize areas of your life, relationships, your family, your career, uh, your spiritual journey. It will make a huge difference in your life. And one more thing on this. If you would say, well, I'm not really a church person. I don't normally go to church. I I don't know that I believe the Bible. I wouldn't call myself a Christian. First of all, so glad that you're here with us or online. So glad that you've, you've joined us today. And I will say this to you. Even if you don't believe Jesus or don't believe the Bible, if you're honest with yourself, if you'll listen to this objectively, you will say, you know what? There's some truth to that. And there's some truth that I can put into my life and my life will be better if I listen to that. Even if you don't believe that Jesus was the son of God or the Bible's inspired word of God. So I'm glad that you're here. Now, before we get into this principle, I want to tell you about something that, that I heard about uh, probably three weeks ago and started doing some investigating on that I find absolutely fascinating. It was in a, just kind of a, a passing comment in a podcast about... Uh, the, the guy that I heard this about wasn't even on the podcast. The man's name was James uh, Chung, and he is, I believe, the vice president of InterVarsity Christian Fellowship. And it was talking about when he was working on his, his doctorate, uh, he came across the sociological um, findings or research of two uh, individuals, Strauss and, and, and uh, Howe, and uh, they were talking about generational cycles and archetypes of different generations. And their findings, um, and I haven't read these books, in the book Generations and also The Fourth Turning, were this, that they looked back over U.S. history and that they found that there was a very predictable cycle of four generations and it would just repeat itself and all throughout. They would, now, when you talk about gen- generations, you know that we're talking generalities. There's always going to be people that say, well, I don't fit into that and don't you know, put me in with the boomers or don't call me a millennial. Okay, granted. But there's some general things. And so what they found in their research was that every generation kind of had this, this um, identity or calling. The, the four, this cycle of these four, was that there was the, the prophet generation, the nomad generation, the hero generation, 
the artist generation, and then it would start over again. And they just saw it. It just repeats itself over and over. One, one little exception was during the Civil War, it skipped a generation, and they figure it's because of the turmoil of the whole you know, United States during that. So, so uh, Chung, he reads this, and he begins to wonder if that's the case on a, like a sociological level, could it be similar on a spiritual level? Could it be that every generation has like one essential question? Again, general, generality here. Could there be one specific question, one essential question that that generation uses to view life and spirituality through? And if that's the case, then we ought to do a starting point with whatever generation from that angle. And so this was his finding. And I'm not here to defend it or to argue it. I'm just reporting it. Is that he said, there is, when it comes to the view of life and, and spirituality, for the boomers, the question that they would ask basically is, is it true? Is it true? If I'm going to stake my life on this, if I'm going to build my whole you know, life and eternity on this, I need to know, is it true? And so for the boomers, apologetics were very important. Give me the facts. How do I know that this is true? What does archaeology say about this? What do the ancient manuscripts say about it? But then when it came to uh, Gen X, they were asking, is it real? Is it real? I don't need your statistics. Tell me, give me a life story. Show me how this plays out. Is this authentic? Will this genuinely make a difference in my life? I want to hear these stories. And then the millennials came along as this hero generation. They were asking, is it good? Will what you're sharing with me, will it, will it help us change the world? We want to see a change in the world. Is it good? And then when it comes to Gen Z, as the artist generation, they would say, is it beautiful? Is what you're telling me worth worshiping? Is it, is it beautiful? And I just want to, I found this whole thing fascinating. I'd love to spend more time talking about this, but that's not what the sermon's about. But this principle that we're going to look at today would hit every single one of those. It's true, and as we talk about it, again, it's, it's not deep, but it's profound, and some of you say, that's absolutely true. It's real, because some of you could say, I'll tell you stories of how that played out in these people's lives or in my own life. It's good, and that if you understand how this, how this works in the dynamics of our lives, our relationships, our families, our world that we have the sphere of influence in, you say, this could change our world as we know it. And if you'll stick with me all the way through the sermon, you'll see how unbelievably beautiful this is. So let's get into it. As we go, I want to revisit the opening salutation from this book. When, when this pastor writes this letter, he writes this in 1 Corinthians 1 verse 2. He says, to the church, that's what we're talking about. It's, it's not to Corinth as a nation or as a, a city. It's to the church. To the church of God in Corinth, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus. Just a reminder, because we covered this six weeks ago, that he gives them a geographical address. They are in Corinth, but he also gives them a spiritual address. They are in Christ. And while these things are happening simultaneously, they're in Corinth and in Christ, they're not synonymous. In fact, being in Christ in Corinth, that was almost antithetical. Corinth was against everything in Christ. It was just the polar opposites. So his whole letter is helping them understand how is it that we can live in Corinth but be more like Christ. And as we continue in this journey, we look less and less like Corinth in its values and its priorities and its relationships, the way that they approach life in all things. And we look more and more like Christ. It's not just how to be in Christ in the world, 
But one of the things he was dealing with that we will talk about today, it's like, how do we be in Christ in the church? Because as I've mentioned, there was some tension and there was division within the body of Christ, within the church. And this particular issue today that we're looking at had to do with this dietary meat issue and meat as sacrifice to idols. And there was this tension because those who were in the church out of a Jewish background came from a very restrictive, law-centered, I mean, the Torah had not just the Ten Commandments, there were 613 commandments, prohibitions, those kind of things that they followed, and, and some of them took those with them. And those coming out of the Greek culture, it was kind of the old, you do you, figure it out, whatever you want goes. You, you put together, it's a smorgasbord, put together your own, you know, your own religion or your own philosophy of life. And so as they all come together with, with this in common, Jesus Christ, some of these Jewish people come with still this holding on to the law and the rules and all the ways that they have been taught. And these Greek people come in and they found Jesus and they've been forgiven and they're in the, in the kingdom of God. But they've got kind of this attitude of, hey, you know, this is the way we've always been. We've always, always lived this way. And there was tension. So Paul is confronting the tension of these prohibitions and this permissiveness that's going on in the church, all these laws. And a lot of it came down to people's preferences from their background. And, and for those from the Greek side, it's, it's from their, their freedom and, and their rights. And they would hold to these things. They'd say, don't tell me how to live. Don't tell me what I should do. You know, you should do this. You should do this. You know, don't shoot on me is what they would be saying. Like, we don't want this. I don't know if you remember when you were growing up, if, was there ever that annoying kid who whenever they were ever given any instruction, they would say, it's a free country. You ever remember, remember that kid? Some of you? It's like, it's a free country. It's a free country. You just want to slap him and send him to North Korea. <laughs> but it was kind of that attitude. Just like, it's a free country. I can do what I want. I've got this freedom. These are my rights. And Paul addresses this, and, and he, he gives us this principle. Now, what he says to them is one that was addressed specifically to meat sacrifice to idols, but what you will see is that it applies to all areas of life, all areas in our life, all areas in this world. I would go so far as to say this topic, this principle would apply to everything as dramatic as nations launching missiles to as upsetting as men wearing Speedos. <laughs> now, I know that's two weeks in a row I've talked about men in Speedos, so I apologize. That will stop now. All the way across. Here's the, kind of the, the foundation, not the biblical, but the foundational truth. This is kind of the, the summation of it all. It's this. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. Now, if you're a parent and you've ever raised a kid, you know this. I mean, you've used this. Just because you can doesn't mean you should. Because in the church in Corinth, there was a phrase that was thrown around apparently quite a bit, a phrase that people would use to justify, a phrase that they would use to, to back up their stance, a, a phrase that would somehow give you know, credibility to what they were doing and why they would do it. It's possible it's possible that this is a phrase that actually Paul had used with them, and now they had taken it out of context into an extreme, or it's possible that it's a phrase that was used in their culture, but it's used enough 
that Paul addresses it in two different places in this letter, four different times. He references this and he puts it in quotation marks. I briefly referenced it last weekend, told you I'd come back to it this weekend. Here is the phrase that they would use when it came to their preferences or their rights or their freedom. It's found in 1 Corinthians chapter 10. It's also found in chapter 6, but we're going to be in chapter 10 today. 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 23, and this was the phrase, everything is permissible. That was their phrase. Everything is permissible. It's possible that when Paul was talking to them about the gospel of Jesus Christ, he may have been talking about the freedom we have in Christ, the forgiveness, the grace that it's a gift. And if they were saying, but what about all these laws? He says, no, 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 no. And can I do this? He says, you know, everything is permissible. He may have said that in trying to help them understand that salvation is a gift. Grace is a gift and that we have freedom in Christ. But there's this phrase and they've taken it to the point where they're using it as a blank check, kind of a, a, a free pass because everything is permissible, I can do whatever I want. And I don't have to worry about anyone else. These are my rights and this is my freedom and these are my preferences. And so I will do that. Similarly, there's a phrase that's been attributed to Augustine. There, there's question about whether he actually said it, but it's this phrase, love God and do as you please. The beautiful phrase, but some people take it to the point of saying, well, I love God, so I can do whatever I want. And what Augustine was saying is if you love God, truly love God. Jesus said, if you love me, you will keep my commandments. If you love God, you'll want his will, not your own. You'll go his way, not your own. You'll follow his word, not just the, the culture. So truly, if you loved God, you can do as you please, because as you please is to do what God would want. So they're saying this, okay, well, everything is permissible. It's all permissible. And Paul kind of like says, yeah, yeah, yeah. But then he gives the other side of this coin. And this is, this is where it's so practically, so profound for us. He says, yes, everything is permissible, but you have to think about this as well. Let's finish the verse. Everything is permissible, they would say. And he would say, but not everything is beneficial. Okay, but everything is permissible. But not everything is constructive. Now, some of you know this. Yeah, there's some things you can do. There's some things that you have done. You were free to do those things, but they weren't beneficial to you in the long run. They weren't constructive in what you really wanted. And this is what, this verse, this one verse to me is so important that I really want you to grasp this. Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. Yeah, everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive. So here's what we're going to do today, because I'm not sure if the rest of my sermon is any good at all but this verse is really good. So here's what we're going to do, because I want this, I want you to walk out of here with this in your mind. This is what we're gonna do in just a minute. We're all gonna stand. We're gonna divide the room in half. And those in Skagit, divide in half, even in the balcony. Those of you in watching online, if there's one, one or two or three other people, just go ahead and divide up in teams here. Two different sides. This side, you are gonna be the people who are quoting this phrase. And this is what you're going to do. You're going to look over to these people and you're going to put your arms up in the air and with great enthusiasm, like a rock star after a show going to the after party, like a, a sailor that's been at the sea for five months and now he has short time aside, you know, for the weekend, like a teenage girl that's trying to convince her parents why she should stay out after midnight. You're going to say, everything is permissible. 
and you are going to be the voice of reason. Not with the same horsepower, with a controlled wisdom, like a guru, like a sage, you're going to put your hand up and say, but not everything is beneficial. And you're going to respond by saying, everything is permissible. And you're going to say, but not everything is constructive. You got this? Question, do you got this? Okay, last night, this side of the room, it was, sounded like Charlie Brown's teacher. Everybody stand up. Here we go. Okay, remember, you're looking at them. Your hands are up in the air. Great enthusiasm. You're a rock star. You're going to party like it's 19-something. Okay, here we go. And then you know what you're going to respond, right? Finger up in the air. All right, here we go. Everything is permissible. But... Wow, you guys did way better than Saturday night. Don't tell them I said that. No, don't sit down. Don't sit down. We're not done because I really want this girl to. You did so well. I want to take it up a notch for you. I want you to have the wisdom of Yoda. So when they say everything is permissible, this is what you're going to say. Beneficial it is not. (laughs) And you will get extra credit if you go, "Mm, beneficial it is not. Okay. All right. So, and the constructive one it is not. Okay. Ready? Are you guys Yoda ready? Okay, here we go. Everything is permissible. All right, sit down. Now listen, here's the truth. If you check out now and don't listen to another word in this sermon and you walk out with that verse, I'm okay with that. I really am. Some of you are saying, okay, did you hear that, mom? Did you hear that, sweetheart? Okay, no, I would like for you to stick around But if we can grasp that verse and that truth and use that as a filter for us when we're making decisions, it will serve us well for the rest of our lives. It will serve us well in our relationships. It will serve us well financially. It will serve us well in exercise and wellness and fitness and health. It will serve us well in our careers and businesses. It will serve us well spiritually. It will serve us so well if we will just use that as a filter. Because I think you would agree with me that when it comes to making decisions and they're not other questionable decisions, we hear the voice of the best salesman in the world, and it's ourself. We can rationalize, we can justify, we can convince, we can become the best argumentative lawyer or attorney ever. We start making these statements in our mind of why we should do these things that we maybe know maybe we shouldn't. No one's going to get hurt. In fact, no one will even know. Start telling ourselves these, these statements about this. You know, I, I can handle it. It's just this once. I can quit anytime I want. You know what? You deserve this. Like, like you've earned this. Hey, everybody does this. It's not like you're the only one. And that voice can convince us and we can build an airtight case in our mind of why we should do this. And if there's any little bit of voice of reason, sometimes there's some questions that we might even ask ourselves, but we've got answer for those. We'll ask ourselves, well, is it illegal? And maybe sometimes the voice will say, what's the chance of getting caught? But is it illegal? I mean... How high is the price tag of that ticket? Or, you know, what's a couple nights in jail? Or, I mean, what kind of fine are you going to get? 
maybe we ask ourselves this question. Is it a sin? We start countering, well, <laughs> not like they sin. It's not that bad. And, 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 God will always forgive you, right? Well, what would others think if they heard about this or they found out? This is kind of the social question. Would people encourage me or would, they, would it be an embarrassing thing? What if my parents knew? What if my spouse knew? What if my kids knew? What if my small group knew? And the truth is this. You can always find another person that will endorse the decision you're trying to make. You can always find one. Always. So you ask these questions. And they're good questions. But they're not the best question. I've, I've done a whole sermon on this. I love this so much from Andy Stanley of the best question ever. The best question is, is it the wise thing? Is it the wise thing? Yeah, but it's my rights, or it's, I've got the freedom, but is it the wise thing? Like Brian Adams would say, this cuts like a knife. This cuts through the fog. This cuts through the emotion. This cuts through the argument. Is it the wise thing for me in my life? Is this beneficial to my life? Is this constructive to my future, to my dreams, to my hopes for my life, to my legacy, to the example I want to set for my kids? Is this beneficial? Is this wise? Is this constructive? That question clears away all the arguments. And whether you follow it or not, it makes the answer very obvious. Years ago, my friend uh, Tom Burke, Professor Tom Burke, uh, was teaching a, a class on business ethics at uh, Whatcom Community College. And uh, Tom, as, as he was teaching this class, uh, invited me to come in as a guest to share because they were talking about business ethics and how do you make decisions in business and what is it that goes into business decisions. And he was, uh, while very strong in his faith, he had to say somewhat neutral in that arena, but he could invite people in. So he had me come in as a Christ follower to talk about business ethics. And I was basically teaching this principle, the whole thing of you know, if, if you're just saying what is legal, that might not be the best filter. There might be a better filter. Or if it's just what's the bottom line, that might not be the best filter. Or, or what will our, our stakeholders or, you know, what will the boards, there might be something better. So I was trying to illustrate this. And because I'm not a business guy, I decided to use a, um, a personal example in my life of kind of to illustrate that if I just ask the question, is it legal, that's probably not the best place to set the bar. Great class, really diverse class of, of uh, genders and ages and ethnicity. It was a beautiful class, a lot of fun. We've been doing some interaction, some bantering. So I said, so here's the example. I said, I could, if I wanted to, empty out all of my bank accounts. I could max out all of my credit cards I could go to the, the bank and get a loan. I could get a second on my house. I could pay the early withdrawal fees and pull out some of my retirement. I could take all of that money and take it to the Silver Reef Casino and put it on red. And I was getting ready to say, that's completely legal. I was telling this whole scenario. And right then, an individual about three rows back, one of our brothers from the Lummi Nation said, we sure wish you would. <laughs> I said, see there, you can always find someone that will endorse your bad decision. Just because it's legal, just because maybe it's not a sin or not a bad sin or God will forgive, maybe that's not the best question. It might be permissible, but is it beneficial? 
I mean, in any area of life. One more example from this. Um, my wife had foot surgery this week, and so she's been laid up. Friday night, she said, you know what? I hate to do this to you, but you know what I really would like tonight is our, our favorite ice cream. We don't keep this ice cream in our house. It's our favorite ice cream. It's only on special occasions. And I said, well, I'll go get it. I mean, she's, you know, recovering from the surgery. I'll go get it. I- interesting thing is kind of the irony of this ice cream. Uh, the, the name of it is Chubby Hubby. And a little side note, if you've never had Ben and Jerry's Chubby Hubby, I mean, before you die and you want to taste heaven, go ahead. So if we kept that in our house, my wife would have a very chubby hubby. So I went to get this. Now, the truth is, it's permissible for me to eat that entire pint, and I have in the past. It's permissible. But is it beneficial? Is it illegal? Absolutely not. Is it a sin? You know, would, would other people be okay with it? But that's not the right question. See, if we ask this question in all these areas of our life, with the use of alcohol, with what we use for entertainment, how we spend our time, how we spend our money, the kind of friends that we hang out, where we hang out with those friends, how we interact with the opposite sex, how we parent, how we are in our marriage, how we are in our spiritual disciplines, how we are in our physical disciplines. If we ask that question, is this permissible? That's the wrong question. We need to ask, is it beneficial? Is it constructive? Is it going to produce in me the life that I want to to truly have? Now, Paul states this very clearly to them. And in another letter to a different church in Ephesus, he states it this way, Ephesus, uh, Ephesians chapter 5, verse 15. Be very careful then how you live, not as unwise, but as wise. So when you say, but, but, but wait a second, but it's my rights, it's, it's my freedom, it's, it's my body, it, it's my life, he would say, absolutely right. And since it's your life, Be very, very wise in how you live it. Don't be foolish. Don't look back with regrets saying, I wish I wouldn't have and I should have. You don't have to. You can make better decisions on this. Now, I will say this. I could stop right there, and some of you wish I would. I could stop right there. And I think you would agree with me. That principle is true. It's real. You've seen it played out in your life and other people's lives. And it's good. Paul takes it to the next level to make it absolutely beautiful. And he takes it one step even further. In the next verse, we'll, we'll go back to verse 23. Everything is permissible, but not everything is beneficial. You guys memorized this verse, by the way, already. Everything is permissible, but not everything is constructive. Then he says this. He takes it to the next level. Nobody should seek his own good, but the good of others. Like when you're clamoring for your rights and your freedom... Do you ever consider how it may impact other people? Do you ever consider what it does to them? Either directly or indirectly or just kind of even in their understanding of things? And isn't this what the message of Jesus was all the way through his ministry? That in this kingdom, that it's not just about me. This kingdom would be others-centered. 
When asked about what is the greatest commandment, of course, to love God with all your heart, soul, and mind. And then he says, and the second is like it, like just as important, to love your neighbor as yourself. I mean, how do you love your neighbor as yourself? Isn't that what he got to with the golden rule? Do unto others, not as they've done unto you, but as you would have. I mean, wasn't that the whole message of the parable of the Good Samaritan? Here are these religious people that were doing what was their rights, what was their freedom, what was good for them, but never really thought about how it impacted someone else. And it was the Samaritan who was not religious at all who becomes the hero of the story because he wasn't self-centered, but others-centered. And when Jesus is with his disciples, he says, you know that those in authority, those in power, those in, in leadership, those who are in power in the, the Gentiles, they lord it over, they rule over other people. Not so with you. So you want to know what greatness is? It's being a servant. I mean, this is a radical change from the Corinthian mindset, from the, 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 the American mindset to the kingdom mindset, even within the church. And in life, when Jesus would say these phrases that are so hard to live, but I tell you, love your enemy. Pray for those who persecute you. Bless those who curse you. That is a very difficult but a very beautiful way to live. So Paul brings them to this as well, because Paul has experienced this as well. And he wants them to think about their freedoms and how they use it, and, and do they ever consider how it impacts others? And he even uses himself as an example. You know, all these, yeah, you can say, this is my rights, these are my freedoms. In the letter earlier, we won't have time to look at some of these chapters. In chapter 8, verse 9, Paul says this, be careful, however, that the exercise of your freedom, I can do this, this is my right, it's permissible, the exercise of your freedom does not become a stumbling block to the weak. Just be aware that when you do that, there are other people that are impacted by your actions, by your thoughts, by your attitudes, by your words. And maybe think through that for a moment. And Paul even says, let me just tell you about myself in chapter 9, verse 19. It says, though I am free and belong to no man, I make myself a slave to everyone to win as many as possible. So I can do what I want. I've got my freedom. I've got my rights. But you know what? I lay those rights down. I set my freedom aside because I want to think about how this impacts other people. The freedom that he was trying to help them understand is it's not just a freedom from the law. There is that. It's not just the freedom from the law. It's the freedom to love and he would write a whole chapter on this, chapter 13. I don't know that we'll even have time. This is the most famous chapter in the whole letter, the love chapter. He would talk about this. I mean, you can speak with the tongues of men and of angels. You can be the most incredible orator. You can have the spiritual gift of tongues. You can talk like an angel. But if you don't have love, you're just making a bunch of noise. You ever thought about someone else as opposed to just all this? And you can have all knowledge and, and perceive all mysteries and be able to figure out all of the things and be the Bible answer man and have all the riddles solved of all the complexities of this world. But without love, you gain nothing. 
I mean, you can even surrender your body to the flames, give all you possess to the poor, do these incredible charitable acts, but if it's not coming out of love, it's nothing. And at the end of that, he says, now these three remain, faith, hope, and love. But the greatest of these is love. So you can le- live a very good life, but if it's going to be beautiful, it's not thinking about yourself first. It's thinking about others. He writes another letter to churches that are in, in the region of Galatia, Asia Minor. In Galatians chapter 5, verse 13, he writes these words. You, my brothers, were called to be free. This is such a big thing, the freedom that we have in Christ. You are called to be free, but do not use your freedom to indulge the sinful nature. Rather, serve one another in love. Yeah, you're free from the law, but you're free to serve. Not free to just sin a palooza and go for it like you would like. You've been set free. And then he would follow that up with the most profound statement in Galatians chapter 5, verse 14. The entire law is summed up in a single commandment. <laughs> Think about that. Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, the Pentateuch. These five words, the Torah. All summed up. Whew, this will be a whole lot easier than reading Leviticus. Give me one. He says, the law is all summed up in a single command. Love your neighbor as yourself. You do that. Jesus lived this way. I mean, you think about how he interacted with people who were so far from God. Who were so rejected by the rest of the world. How he interacted with lepers. How he interacted with tax collectors. How he interacted with prostitutes and sinners. And his disciples. On the night before he went to the cross, he was in the upper room with his disciples. And he knew full well what he was going to do. He knew that he would be arrested. He knew that he would be condemned. He knew that he would be crucified. He knew what he was going to do. And he knew completely what they were going to do. And even knowing that, it would have been permissible for him to condemn them, to walk away from that dinner. It would have been permissible for him to just, you know, like never have anything to do with them again. It would have been permissible for him to, to leave Jerusalem and not have to. It would have been permissible to do all of that. But he wasn't driven by what was permissible. And so on the night that he was betrayed, after they had had this supper together, he decides to wash feet. And he washes the feet of Judas. The very feet that in a few moments would walk out of that room and then go get Roman guards and take them to the garden where he knew Jesus would be later that night. He washed those feet. He washed the feet of James and John, the sons of thunder, these brothers, who in a matter of a couple of hours would be running for their lives, fleeing the garden and abandoning Jesus. He washed the feet of Simon Peter who in the middle of the night, these feet would be standing by a fireplace, warming himself, 
while he calls down curses upon himself, denying that he's ever met this man Jesus before. He washed their feet. And notice, no one washed the feet that would have a nail driven through them. And Jesus returns to the table and he says this in John 13, 34. A new command I give you. <laughs> they knew the 613 commands. They knew the Ten Commandments. He says, I'm giving you a new command. Love one another. And then he qualifies it. Let me tell you what I mean by that. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. That's the new command. That's the new law. It's the law of Christ. The law of Christ is to love. Oh, man, I got to hurry. Let me finish this up. Um, at the end of this passage, in, in chapter 11, verse 1, which really fits more with chapter 10 than chapter 11, Paul writes these words. He says, follow my example as I follow the example of Christ. This is our goal around here, that we would all be finding and following Jesus. Because what you have with Jesus is the life of Christ. It's the most beautiful life. There's all kinds of things that would have been permissive for him. There are all kinds of things that would have been permissible and even expected of him. The infinite creator of the world, the almighty you know, uh, sustainer of all things, the, the eternal receiver of worthy uh, worship, he could have, should have stayed in heaven. That would be permissible. That would be expected. That would be right but it wouldn't be beneficial for those who are broken and lost. It wouldn't be constructive for the kingdom. And while being in the very nature of God, he didn't consider equality of God to be something to be grasped, Philippians 2. But he made himself nothing, taking the nature of a servant and being made in human likeness. The almighty God of the universe humbles himself and becomes obedient to death, even death on a cross. Why? Hebrews, it was because the joy set before him that he would endure the cross, scorn and shame. What's that joy? That you and I could have a right relationship with God. That we wouldn't have to deal with our guilt and our punishment that we deserve. And being slaves to the law and slaves to sin, that we could be free in Christ. How beautiful is that? So, Paul brings this all back down, and he says, I don't want this to just be a theological concept. This is how we live our lives. So look what he says in chapter 10, verse 31. Very much everyday examples. So whether you eat or drink, something you do every day, or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Okay, so let's bring it all together here and wrap it all up. Don't you think it's true and real and good and beautiful that if when we were making decisions in our life, we ran it through filters like this, is this the wise thing? I know it's permissible, but is this wise? Is this going to benefit the life that I'm trying to, is this going to be constructive for me in my spiritual journey? Is this going to be constructive for me in all these things? And how will this impact others? Am I only thinking about my own good or am I thinking about others in this? 
And will this glorify God? I want to tell you, if I ran my decisions through those three questions, my life would be radically different. My relationships would be completely different. My world would be more beautiful. God calls us as his church in this world to be in Christ. Yep, all things are permissible. But not all things are beneficial. And not all things are constructive. And it's not just about us. And it's about glorifying God. Not deep and theological, but unbelievably practical. 